Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're going to bring our message for this morning, which is our third message in our series called Rejoy. And the title for this morning is The Joy of Hope. So far we looked at the joy of friendships, we looked at the joy of, of proclaiming the gospel, and we're looking at how do we restore, how do we rejuvenate the joys that we so desperately need in order to reform our community and to walk closely with God. And so we're studying the book of Philippians, which is Paul the Apostle's letter to the church that he helped found in the city of Philippi. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the joy of hope. I read a story about Rabbi Hugo Grin, who used to tell of his experiences as a boy in Auschwitz in the concentration camp during the Second World War. He talked about how the food supplies were scarce. The inmates, they would take every little scrap and save it and make sure that they, they, they put it away. And so his father, when it came time for the festival of Hanukkah, he took out a lump of margarine and used it as fuel for the Hanukkah light. And so little Hugo was absolutely horrified at this. And he says, what? What are you doing? How are you doing this? And his father says this, and this is profound. He says, we know that it's possible to live for three weeks without food, but without hope, it is impossible to live properly for three minutes. Human beings can withstand almost anything if they only have hope. But one of the strange things about the Bible, about this Christian faith, is that it tells us it's not only possible to survive with hope, but that we can actually have joy in the midst of suffering. Now, I think that's one of the strangest things about Christian faith. In fact, from a certain perspective, you could say that's, that almost seems cruel to teach that kind of thing, that you could have joy in the midst of suffering. But if there's one joy, I think we're looking at, at, at different joys that we need to recover, that we need to restore. Well, if there's one joy that I think has been lost more than any of the others that we're going to look at, it's this thing that James talks about in chapter one of James. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If there's one joy that's been lost, it's the kind of joy that Hebrews 12 talks about when it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. If there's one joy that's been lost, it's the kind of joy that Paul talks about in Romans 5 when he says, not only can we have hope in our suffering, but he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Nothing seems quite as strange as that in Christian beliefs. And so what we're going to see today is that the key is not only to have joy, but it's key to have the right kind of joy. So we're going to read from Philippians 1, verse 18, the second half of verse 18 to verse 26. And if you've, you've missed any of the previous messages, you should know that this is the Apostle Paul writing. He's writing from, from prison in Rome. And we read about, if you want to know the backstory to that, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. But let's read from Philippians 1, starting halfway through verse 18. And it says, Yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And remember, he's, he's talking about his imprisonment there. He's awaiting trial in Rome before Caesar. It says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so you see Paul here beginning to contemplate the possibility of his execution at the hands of the Romans. And he goes on, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So this week, I already mentioned, Selene and I will be leading a missions team to Prague in the Czech Republic, where if you don't know, this is, it's where we previously lived before serving, coming to serve here. And one of the things that I most loved about living in Prague was being surrounded by this rich sense of history. And Prague is one of the most beautiful, well-preserved cities in Europe because it wasn't bombed during the war. The reason it wasn't bombed is that before Hitler invaded Poland, the Allies handed him Czechoslovakia. It was called the policy of appeasement. And so the Czech people rightfully felt very betrayed. They, their, their sovereignty as a nation was violated. Their government facing an enemy that obviously they, they had no chance of overcoming. They decided to concede and go into exile. And so the Czechs entered, the Czechs and the Slovaks entered into more than five years of enemy occupation. And so your average person suffered humiliation daily. And of course, if you were a Czech Jew, you not only suffered humiliation, you suffered genocide. And so it was this period of intense suffering over an enemy that they had no hope of naturally overcoming. In spring 1945, the Nazis were on their last legs. They were, they were the, 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 the Russians and the, the Allies were closing in. And so in those last couple weeks of the war, news reached Prague that General Patton's army had reached Pilzen, which is 60 miles from Prague. And so the hope of deliverance was on the horizon. And what happened was the people in the city, there, 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 there wasn't a large Czech resistance. There was a Czech resistance, but, but at that moment when the hope of deliverance began to come up over the, the, the horizon, Thousands of people rose up and began to fight in a way that they had not had the, 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 the courage or the boldness to do before because hope had suddenly appeared. The hope of deliverance had suddenly appeared. And so they had courage, they had boldness, and you might even say that they had joy injected into that situation as they saw that the chance of freedom was actually at hand. And so I'm reminded of that as I read this passage because what I think what Paul is talking about 
The reason that he's able to write as he does and what we've read there and the reason that the New Testament authors are able to write as they, as they do is, is our first point this morning, which is this. The hope of deliverance brings joy in suffering. It's the hope of deliverance that is able to bring joy in suffering. And I think that's somewhat of a universal experience, just like the Czech resistance. Anytime where you're in a dire situation and the hope of deliverance arises, there's a joy that can break out, a courage, a boldness. And, and even in the face of great odds, and you can think of how many stories through history, how many great works of, of, of fiction that, that depict that. And it's a hopeful joy that allows you to rise up against the odds. And so the first question that we have to ask though, okay, I think that's what's going on in Paul's heart. That's the kind of joy that he has in mind. That's the kind of hope of deliverance that he has in mind. But we have to ask, what is it that he has this hope of deliverance for? What is the hope of deliverance that he's talking about? Because what we're going to see as we go through this is that the answer to that question, the answer of what your hope actually is, makes all the difference in the world. All right, so when we ask about the kind of deliverance that Paul's hoping for, I think there's three possibilities. Three things that when we read that, he might be talking about. So number one, Paul might be talking about the fact that he has a hope that God's going to rescue him from the situation, that he's not going to have to stand trial before Caesar. That's one possibility. And you think, well, why not? In Acts 16 and other places, Paul is miraculously Delivered, he's miraculously saved from the situation. He no longer has to face what he was potentially going to go through. But when you read on in the passage, Paul's talking about his eager expectation is that he would have the opportunity to witness to Caesar. And so that doesn't seem to be the hope that he's talking about here. So there's a second option. Well, maybe Paul is talking about having a a, a hope that when he does stand trial, that he's going to be vindicated. That when he stands trial, he is going to be found innocent and that in the eyes of the court, in the eyes of the world, Jesus will be proclaimed and Paul will be vindicated. But again, this is not what Paul seems to be placing his hope in because because when you... (laughs) This doesn't seem to be what Paul's placing his hope in because when you read on in that passage, he doesn't seem to have any real expectation. He's unsure of what the outcome's going to be. He's unsure whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. And so that's not, even though in other situations where he is the apologist, where he's giving his legal defense, where, where that's not what he seems to be placing his hope in here. His hope of deliverance seems to be in something else. And so we come to a third possibility, which is this. Paul's hope of deliverance is not that suffering would be avoided. It's not that his suffering would be rewarded. It's that his suffering would somehow be transformative. That his suffering would somehow be transformative because the word that Paul uses here for deliverance, this is the I'm not sure why they translate it deliverance instead of salvation because most other places it's translated salvation. This is, this is the standard word for salvation. He's not talking about escaping trial. He's not talking about being vindicated in Roman court. He's talking about the Lord's deliverance. He's talking about the Lord's salvation. And when you, when you, when you read Paul's writings, when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about 
his being being transformed by the life of Christ. He's talking about a transformation by the life of Christ. And so the point is this, our hope makes suffering neither avoided nor rewarded, but transformative. I was looking really hard for something that would rhyme there and there just wasn't anything. But our hope makes suffering either avoided nor rewarded, but transformative. And it reminds me of a moment when, when our daughter Nia was, was in the womb and we went to see the doctor and they did some blood testing and it came back and it said, there's a chance of Down syndrome here in this fetus. And so the doctors sat us down and they talked to us about this and they said, what do you want to do? Now, in that moment, our hope had to be in something, all right? We're going to get into different hopes here. But it made a massive difference to know that our hope was not that suffering should be avoided. Because if, if all we wanted was for suffering to be avoided, well, there was an option that was given to us. You can avoid this potential suffering by aborting this baby. Our hope was not that our suffering would be rewarded, that, you know, somehow if we go through this, that God's going to, you know, give us this great blessing. It was, it was that we knew in that moment, and we said to the doctor, what do you mean? We're, we're going to have this baby either way. <laughs> Knowing that even if that should happen, that God is going to use it to shape us and to transform us more into his likeness. And so our hope makes suffering neither avoided nor rewarded, but transformative. Now, if there's one thing, I mentioned this history of the Holocaust. If there's one thing that the survivors of the Holocaust taught us, it's that in times of great suffering, the thing that keeps a person is their hope. Without hope, you can't even make it most of the time. But the thing is, it's the suffering of life that shapes us as people more than anything else. The greatest insights, the greatest uh, aspects of your character, more often than not, will be received, will be learnt, not through the times of, of, you know, vacationing and having, you know, it's, it's through your hardest moments in life that your character gets formed. So suffering is always formative. It shapes our character. You can't help that. But the question is, what will it shape in your character? When you go through suffering, it's always going to shape you somehow. But the question is, how is it going to shape you? What is it going to shape in you? Because you see that suffering always shapes people, but it doesn't always shape people for the better. It doesn't always shape people for good. So what makes the difference? Well, what makes the difference, I believe, is your definition of life. Now, what do I mean by that? Paul says, the reason he knows that the outcome of this suffering that he's going through, the reason that he knows that it's going to be ultimately for his good, it's going to be transformative in his life in Christ, is that his definition of life is, is sorted out. It's straight. Here's what he says. For him, the meaning of life is Christ. To live is Christ. Therefore, the very worst that the world can throw at him is nothing but a win if it brings him closer to Jesus. In fact, he even says, when that's the case, to die is even gain. You know, when Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, he said, this sickness will not lead to death. 
And a couple of verses later, we learn Lazarus is dead and rotten. What's going on there? Is Jesus a hopeless optimist? No, it's because he's functioning on a different definition of life. So, Ian, are you just talking about word games here? You know, do we just like f- make everything faithy and say, oh, that's not really this, this is this? No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Here's the thing the point is this hope is determined by your definition of life. Hope is, de- is determined by the definition of life. Now, I would argue there's lots of different definitions of life. And I would argue the basic meaning of what we, what we think of as life, the meaning of life in, in our part of the world, in the modern world, the Western world, if you will, I think the basic meaning of life that we cling to is the avoidance of death, the avoidance of pain and suffering. Now, I think you see that all over the place, but, but you can see it in that death is a taboo subject. It's, it's not the topic of polite conversation. In the Western world, especially, most people rarely see death. They rarely come across people. You know, we, we, the, the sick and the dying are, are put into specific places that are out of our general you know, path. Our technology, our medicine, it, it gives us the illusion that we might actually be able to escape suffering and death indefinitely. If only we can crack the code. And there are, there's, there's a billion dollar industry of scientists working to do exactly that. To crack the code so that human beings no longer need to die. And so if this is the definition of life, that's not a conspiracy theory, by the way, that's, that's just out there. If that's your definition of life, what happens is your hope then is tied to health, wealth, happiness, and pleasure. And that's wonderful. So long as you're well off, you're healthy, and you have the, the good stuff. And so that's, that's a definition of life that I believe our world has, has begun to center itself around. And it's, it's pretty unique in the history of the world in doing that. That's why we seem to experience pain and suffering not as a regular part of life as most people and around the world today and through history have understood, but we experience suffering as an imposition on life. We experience it as an injustice towards life. And and so it's a definition of life that essentially gives you no resources to deal with with, with suffering and pain. It gives you nothing to deal with it. If that's your definition of life, if that's your hope, then when suffering comes, as it inevitably will, because it's a, it's a universal part of the human experience, it cannot give you joy. It cannot lead you to joy. Where it does lead you is to despair, to depression, to a sense of worthlessness. And so that's one definition of life. But that's not everyone's definition of life. There's, there's another one that I think is gaining popularity. Other people see themselves as having a more robust view of life, that life is not just about having good, it's not, sorry, having fun, feeling good. There's people whose definition of life is more to do with, and, and making, it's more to do with working hard and building something and, and making a difference. And so if you're that kind of person, a lot of times you can embrace the fact that suffering is part of life. Well, suffering 
you know, hard work, if you don't, no pain, no gain, if you don't put the blood, sweat, and the tears in, well, then you don't deserve to, to enjoy any of the benefits. And so there's an author, Anne Rand, who, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of her, but her novels have become extremely popular in the last 70 years among certain circles. And largely because in her novels, she fleshes out this, this philosophy that she called objectivism. She wrote this novel called Atlas Shrugged. It was one of those that I'd always heard of, but it was so intimidatingly large that, you know, I had to get the audiobook <laughs> and listen to it at double speed. And it's still 52 hours long. So I haven't, you know, it's been like two years. I haven't still, still haven't gotten to the end of it. But here's the thing. Okay, you know, Atlas Shrugged. It's very interesting. And what she describes is the society kind of at war between these two definitions of life. On the one hand, you've got these spongers, these people who do nothing and expect everything in return. They expect everything to be handed to them, for everything to be easy, for everything to be pleasurable. Handouts left, right, and center. But on the other what she paints is these heroic men and women of action who know that achievement takes suffering, it takes work. And so they deserve the rewards that they enjoy and no one else does because they weren't willing to put in the suffering to enjoy those rewards. And so in that case, if, you're, if that definition of life is, is what you operate on, well then suffering can become a badge of honor. And so here's the thing, if that's your definition of life, if that's your hope, what suffering can end up producing in you is a sense of superiority. It can produce a sense of pride and disdain towards people who aren't willing to put in the work. And so if, if what happens is for that person when you feel that what you deserve because of your suffering is withheld, well, it can produce this, this incredible anger and wrath in you. This desire to, to, to take vengeance on the world. And so and we could point to a lot of historical and contemporary examples of that. But what you have is these two definitions of life. One definition of life says life is about avoiding suffering. Another definition of life says life is about rewarding suffering in another way. And what happens as a Christian when your life is founded on this, this avoidance of pain? If that's your definition of what life should be, well, what happens is anytime you're subjected to suffering, you can very quickly begin to feel that God doesn't love you. And maybe not only that he doesn't love you, but maybe he doesn't even exist. Because this is what life is supposed to be. I'm suffering. I'm having pain. Where's God? How could God allow this, 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 type, this type of thing? And so we know there, there's, that has to be the number one reason for people falling away from, from the faith that they espouse. But I've also seen people fall away with that second definition of life. And I think this one is much more subtle. So growing up, as a missionary kid on the international mission field, you get to observe many missionaries and people coming on the field. And, and when you know missionaries, when you're in that, in that lifestyle, you know that generally these are people that are acquainted with discomfort. They're happy 
They're okay with foregoing many of the pleasures and stabilities of life for the sake of the gospel. And so these are people that generally they don't mind a bit of discomfort. They may not even so much mind a bit of suffering and even persecution. But what you sometimes see is after a year, after two years, after 20 years, that same person begins to develop this, this, this subtle bitterness, this subtle anger towards the world. And it comes out, I, I've seen this happen where it comes out in this kind of disdain even for the people and the mission field that they've been sent to. And so more often than not, I think it comes down to the fact that they haven't felt as if their suffering was properly rewarded. God, I've been serving you all this time and you didn't give me the spouse that I wanted. Or you didn't give me a spouse at all. Or you didn't give me the recognition that I feel I deserve. And so whatever it is, there's, there's this very subtle thing that can happen. And I think it's tied to this underlying definition of life that shapes our hopes and, and therefore it shapes what our suffering forms in us. And I think everything that it shapes, whatever else it shapes, it doesn't shape joy in you when that's your definition of life and that's your hope. And so now I can say that and and we can easily begin to think of other people that this might apply to, but I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is my definition of life? What is the hope that I'm clinging to? You might ask, well, Ian, man, can you really go through life and even be in ministry for that long and have these these faulty hopes? Yep. And so this is something that we need to be vigilant against. And, And the difficult thing is that it's often so hard to tell our true motives, our true hopes. And so I think there's there's three things in this passage that I think help us to reveal the true hopes that we're, that we're clinging to. Number one, well, here, here's what they are. I'll tell you all three and then we'll go through them quickly. Hope is revealed by what we honor, how we serve, and who we're committed to. Hope is revealed by what we honor, how we serve, and who we're committed to. And I think you see these three things. There's, I'm sure there's many more things, but these are the things that I feel that this passage shows to us. Paul says that the meaning of life for him was Jesus. Therefore, his ultimate hope was that Jesus would be honored in his body. And he uses the word, he's not just talking about his physical body. It's the word soma. It's his entire being that God, that Jesus would be honored in the entirety of his being. And so what you honor reveals what your hope is in. And if that's true, I think there's a test for this. What has the power to shame you? What is it in your life that has the power to shame you? Honor and shame. For Paul, being in chains had no power to shame him. It's quite a shameful thing as a Roman citizen to be imprisoned. It's quite a shameful thing to be belittled by his critics, to have no power to defend himself publicly. It was potentially shameful to be in poverty as he was. 
It was shameful to be physically limited, to be uh, limited even in his rhetorical skills as he talks about in other, in other of his letters. But none of these things had the power to shame Paul. He says, if Christ is your life, if Christ is really your life, then there's only one thing that should ever be able to shame you, which is dishonoring him. The possibility that your life might bring dishonor to Jesus. That's the only thing that had the power to shame Paul. And to the extent, when I look at myself, when we look at ourselves, I believe, to the extent that any of these other things have the power to shame me, it shows me that my hope is still somewhat located in them. If I have the, if, if what people say about me, if my bank account, if, if the house that I live in, if my level of education, if the job that I have, if my children's behavior has the power to shame me, well, then it shows me there's some element of those things that I'm still placing my hope in, that I'm still placing my, my definition of life in. I'm still hoping somehow that those things are able to bring me life. So the first question is, what has the power to shame you? But secondly, there's a second thing here that that we see. It's to do with how we serve. So from verse 22, Paul talks about the tension between dying and being with the Lord, living, serving in the mission. And on the one hand, he's got his personal desire, which is to be with Jesus, which is far better, he says. And on the other hand, he's got the common good of the church, in view. And so his desire is to be with the Lord, but what's good for the church is the reason for him to continue living. And so I think in a similar way, a test of whether our hope is actually resting in Jesus, if uh, the test of whether Jesus is our life is whether our service is really about grateful service or selfish gratification. Am I serving because I want to get something? Am I serving because I want people to like me or think that I'm a good person? Or, or you know, it's the question of, can I put up with my desires not being fulfilled? Am I seeking to get something by my involvement in the body of Christ? Or am I seeking to give something to the body of Christ? And so again, this is, this is very subtle. These are things that, that we, we've got to, take to the Lord and wrestle with because, you know, we, we, we rationalize and self-justify a million times a day. And so a lot of times we can be unaware of our actual motives, of our actual hopes. But some of these, um, some of these tests, I believe if you bring them to the Lord, they'll help you reveal where your actual intimacy is with God. To what extent, Jesus, my faith is in you, but to what extent am I hoping in these other things? And I think the, the Christian life is this constant stripping away of idols that all that would be left would be Christ. And so the first thing is how, uh, what we honor, how we serve, and then thirdly, who are we committed to? Because at the end of this passage, we see that, that Paul says, well, I'm weighing up. Should I, should I follow my personal desire and go be with Jesus? Or should I follow what is best for the church as a whole and, and continue on and serve you? And what we get to see is his level of commitment to his community, to the people that God's given him. And so 
The third thing that I believe can help reveal our underlying hope, our underlying meaning of life, is the measure of our commitment to, to community. Now, this is not a pitch for you to go sign up for Sunday school and, and you know, family promise, although, you know, you should definitely do those things. But uh, this is something different. I'm talking about the tendency of our hearts to be restless for other things, other places, other jobs, other people. Restless in our desire for fulfillment, for purpose, for meaning. And the result of that is that we play fast and loose with relationships. Now, you know, as I talk about this, this is almost kind of like an entry requirement to be a millennial. That's my generation, millennials. We're known for like constantly job shifting and moving around and doing, because we're, we're, you know, you you grow up being told you can do whatever you want. You can follow the dream. You can, you know, put your mind to it and you can do anything. And then we find out, well, it's it's a little more complicated than that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but it's not just millennials. In Paul, in, in verses 25 and 26, Paul says, he knows he's convinced of what is best for the body. And it's, it's to stick around. It's that God would continue giving him life for a season so that he could continue serving the body. And so this is what he says. He says, I know that the body could really use me, but I just desire Jesus so much that I'm going to go be with him. He says, I I know that the church can benefit from my gifts and callings, but I'm not really sure that I'm going to be fulfilled in this particular church. So I'm going to go here and there and over there instead. And that one cuts a little deep, guys. <laughs> now, what he, what he actually says is what he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Remain, remain, remain. His, his, I'm not saying there's never a good reason to go to a different church. I'm not saying that. Okay. I'm not saying that God doesn't call you to another church, but, but there is something in the heart of God that is about faithfulness to a specific, it's, you know, it's very easy to be faithful to humanity at large. It's very difficult to be faithful to specific humans. (laughs) Because humanity as a general principle never really annoys you, never really gets, you know, on, under your skin. But, but human beings in particular, specific ones, are pretty good at that. And so, remain, remain. And, and Paul's, he, he's not saying that his individual desires are not important. What he's saying is his hope is not in their fulfillment. His hope is not in the fulfillment of his personal desires. His life, you know, many of you have heard of Maslow's hierarchy. At the t- you know, you've got food, sleep, you know, rest, all these things. At the top of it, at the top of the hierarchy, he says human, human life is about self-realization. Well, Paul says, no, it's not. No, it's not. The pinnacle of your life is not self-realization. It is Christ-realization. That Christ would be formed in your life is the pinnacle of human existence. And so a test of our hope and life being in Christ alone is that the restlessness begins to, to die down. That we'd be, we, we, 
We're not always restless for the greener grass and the cooler crowd and the bigger show. I'm preaching to myself here, guys. Okay. But here's the thing. This, this is a, a test that we can apply to our hearts. To the extent that I am continually restless for those things, it shows me that at least some of my hope is in them. At least some of my definition of life is in them. It's located in getting those things. And so it doesn't mean, you know, Jesus doesn't have you. It doesn't mean that you're not a a, a Christian. But what it does mean is there's work to do in the idol factory of your heart. Now, I want to finish by asking this. How can you be so consumed with Jesus that your hope and life is found in him alone. How, how did Paul get there? And I want to tell you, this is not one more thing that you got to do. This is not one more moral, you know, to-do list that you have to go and perform. It, it's, it's something that Jesus has done. It's something that Jesus started because this is, this is what Jesus did. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Well, Here's our last point. The cross tells us that for Jesus to live is you. Paul said to live for me, to live is Christ. Well, the cross tells us that for Jesus to live means you. In in, in John 17, 19, Jesus says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What Jesus is saying is he has submitted the entirety of his life's mission to getting his bride, to winning a people. Jesus says, if I live my entire life on earth and I don't get that, I haven't fulfilled my purpose. Of course, the ultimate purpose of all that is the glory of God. And yet Jesus's earthly life, he says, for me to live is you. The joy that was set before him on the way to the cross, the reason that he despised the shame and bore the cross was for the joy set before him, which was you, his people. Jesus knew that his suffering would produce joy because it would result in his people. It would result in you and me. And so I want to invite the, the worship teams back up and, and we'll just finish with a chorus. If you can see, if your heart can see that you are the joy that Jesus lived for, that will begin to transform your heart. We can have hope as we endure absolutely anything that life can throw at us. And not only can we just have hope, we can have joy because... Not that we're just going to avoid pain. Sometimes God allows us to avoid the pain. Not just that he's going to reward us for the pain that we suffer. Sometimes we do get to enjoy something good that comes out of our suffering, but it's not, it's not ultimately about that. It's that our suffering, when we hope in him, we have the promise that our suffering will only make us more like him. It will transform us. It will result in our salvation. It will result in the image of Jesus being formed in us. And that is the pinnacle of human existence. There may be someone here or maybe someone watching online who, who 
is hearing this for the first time where, where this love of Jesus, for the first time you're sensing, this is something that I want to experience. This is something that I want to know. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, talk to him. Come to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I've disappointed you, walked away from you, disobeyed you. Thank you that you loved me enough that you were willing to die for me. That you said to live is, is me. Jesus, I want to come to you right now and become your student. I want to walk with you for the rest of my life. Please give me your Holy Spirit and make me a new person. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.